0: This is The Guardian.
1: Today, something different from today in Focus. Our US Southern Bureau Chief Oliver Lockland has spent the past six months following what happened when a progressive black district attorney called Jason Williams was elected in Louisiana, the heart of the Deep South. Jason had promised sweeping reforms across the city of New Orleans, But he had no idea just how hard that would be. Over the next four days, we're going to be following that journey. And just a heads up, this series contains strong language and depicts scenes of violence.
2: One day this spring, Under blue skies, on a searing hot New Orleans day, (laughs) I go for a walk with Keith Plessy.
3: We're here in New Orleans, uh, one day before Mardi Gras, it's called Lundi Gras. (laughs) The the Monday before Fat Tuesday.
2: (laughs) We're walking through Bywater. It's the neighborhood where I live. And something that could only happen in New Orleans happens. All of a sudden as we walk, this huge parade comes out of nowhere and kind of envelops us. Everyone is strolling along, drinking beer, wearing beautiful, incredibly elaborate costumes. But the parade isn't why I'm out here with Keith. We're actually looking for something else, just around the corner, that he wants to show me. And this is basically where he was arrested, right? Yes,
3: on this corner, where the marker
2: is, he was arrested. A few more steps up ahead. The spot where his ancestor, Homer Plessy, was arrested, nearly 130 years ago. The first step in a chain of events that would change America for decades. It was 1890, the Civil War had ended, and states across the South were trying to strip black people of their rights. In Louisiana, there was a new law that segregated train carriages.
3: Well, the separate car law was written to separate passengers by race. It was the act to promote the comfort of passengers. That was written in the law. And the only comfort I could see was the comfort that white people didn't want to sit next to a black person.
2: A group of influential black residents decided to challenge that law. And a man called Homer Plessy volunteered to board a train, get arrested and challenge the arrest in the courts. He stepped up to this
3: area we're standing in right now. This is where the East Louisiana Railroad Depot was just behind us. And he purchased that ticket. When he got on the train, he was about to ride out and the conductor stepped up to ask him, was he a colored person? And he replied, yes. And when he was told to move to the colored car, he
2: refused. Plessy was arrested, just like they planned. And it went all the way up to the Supreme Court just like they planned. But that's where things started to go wrong. They lose.
3: It was probably the most disastrous decision in US Supreme Court history. Because what it did is at a time when America could have changed and turned the corner, in reconstruction, we could have learned lessons where if the playing field is fair for everybody, everybody has a chance. But what they did is went backwards Separate but equal turned America backwards for the next 58 years.
2: The Plessy decision established in law, the doctrine of separate but equal. Separate drinking fountains, separate bathrooms, separate schools, Jim Crow segregation. For Keith, his ancestor was a pioneer whose act of civil disobedience created a blueprint for the civil rights movement to come. But for a long time, in the eyes of the law, Homer Plessy was a criminal.
3: Well, I think he kind of faded into oblivion. When he passed away, his obituary did not declare that he was cleared of any charges that he had. So he went to his grave with that conviction on him.
2: This January, 130 years after the New Orleans district attorney had prosecuted Plessy, I sat at the old train station where he boarded that train. As a new district attorney, named Jason Williams, a progressive prosecutor, someone who many people thought would never win election in this city, formally apologised for the actions of his predecessors.
3: just because a law can be enforced or a person can be prosecuted
0: does not mean that they should be. So let me tell you today, I did not submit this pardon asking for Homer Plessy to be forgiven. I submitted it asking for us to be forgiven, the institution.
2: And Louisiana's governor signed a pardon and acknowledged the conviction was wrong.
3: If you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. So we have to be vigilant in terms of learning lessons from the wrongs of the past. We can't correct them back then, but we can surely do something about it right now.
2: What Keith is talking about here, trying to learn from the past, that's exactly what Jason Williams promised to do. We must
0: reckon with our past, we must confront. We must acknowledge and we must humbly ask for forgiveness for the
2: One of the first things Jason did after he won was to set up a brand new department in the DA's office, a civil rights division. A small team of lawyers and investigators tasked with looking back through thousands of old cases, working out whether all these people should still be in prison. It's a massive task in New Orleans of all places. The most incarcerated city, in the most incarcerated state, in the world's most incarcerated country. Where do you even start? Is it even possible? From The Guardian, I'm Oliver Lockland. Today in Focus, part one of a four part investigative series, The Division, New Orleans. The work of the division started in 2021 but to understand the complexity of what they're doing i'm going to take you back to the late 1980s
4: my name is Quante reader i'm 49 years old i grew up in new orleans louisiana
2: New Orleans sits on a bend of the Mississippi River. The river is huge, fast flowing, brown and muddy, a near constant stream of container ships and old fashioned paddle steamers taking tourists on guided cruises. Most of the city is on the east bank of the river, but there's one ward on the west side over a huge steel bridge. Algiers. And that's where Quante grew up. Back then, Algiers was like a lot of New Orleans. One moment, it's a patchwork of beautiful one-story Creole cottages with little porches and steeply pitched roofs, all painted different colors. And the next, It's huge, grey housing projects. Quante was into sport as a kid. He was tall, broad-shouldered, and said he could play any position in American football. His family was tight. Three brothers, one sister. And he was raised by his mum, a postal worker.
4: My mom, she was a single mom. And uh, what she would do, she had to dress up in a poster uniform. And uh, as a kid, she bought me a poster uniform. So when she didn't have nobody to watch me, she'd bring me to work with that poster uniform on. You know, and and it made me feel good. I I was happy being with my mother and being at her job, watching her do what she does. You know, and, and, and that moment right there was like, I knew that my mom, was a great person that told me who she was. You know, she was willing to go to work every day and work hard. She worked at the post office for years, but then she fell on hard times, and uh, we had to move into a project, the Fisher Housing Project. When we first moved there, it was really nice. You know, it wasn't trashed and anything like that, but um, eventually it started, you know, getting kind of like deteriorating. And it got hard, you know, it got harder and harder. You know, you, know, you choose the wrong friends and a lot of bad things started to happen. And that's what I did. I chose a lot of the wrong friends and things started happening.
2: This was the early 90s. Crime rates around the US were soaring. And New Orleans had some of the highest rates in the country. Quante was young, 19 years old. And like a lot of people in his neighbourhood, he'd had a few run-ins with the police.
4: When you're in a housing project, police back there all the time. And they're just arresting you. You know, they're just making their day go by.
2: But you never really got into major trouble until April the 13th, 1993.
4: It was a nice day. Sun was out, the sky was blue. I remember the morning of April 13th, clearly because... We had scheduled a basketball game, and uh, it was like a project basketball game, but it was like a tournament. So your team had to be from what part of the project you lived in. And uh, we would all go out there, and we played play $20 a man. They had a guy out there, he balls like crawfish and crabs and seafood and stuff like that. You know, we eat while we waiting on the sideline, if we lose. And we just played almost until it got dark.
2: At some point between the crawfish and sunset, he says they were interrupted.
4: Now, be mindful. This is a project. Everything is open, wide. So if somebody pop a firecracker on the other court, you can actually hear it. And uh but we had heard some loud pops, bam, 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 you know. So we like pause. But you know, people run through that popping firecracker, sometimes they run through that shooting. So we didn't think nothing of We just resumed playing. While we were playing, some guys came over and said, "Man, somebody just got shot."
5: Mark was my oldest, independent, I would say, a fun person.
2: Mary Green's son, Mark Broxton, was 21 years old.
5: He was smart. Academically, he had lots of friends. He made friends easily. I just do not know a child.
2: That day, Mark had been at a food store called Julian's, not far from where Mary was working.
5: I was a city bus driver in Jefferson Parish. At the time, I was driving the bus. My route took me along the area where he was and as i approached i sat at the red light waiting for the light to change and i saw that there were many police cars that were there at the store and my first thought was something serious must have happened because you know they had some four or five police cars there and as i turned the corner there was a young man that was friends with Mark that was flagging me down. I stopped, and he told me that Mark had been shot. I was really shaken by it, but I didn't know the extent of the shooting or his injuries. I called uh, my boss and told him that I had to go, I had to leave the bus because my son had been shot. I hurried over to the charity hospital where he had been taken. And when I got there, I forced myself into a, into an examination room where I saw Mark lying.
2: When you look back through the police files in the case you can see this was not a particularly thorough investigation the case isn't even assigned a homicide detective until three days after Mark died sometimes months go by between witnesses being brought in for interview in 1993 395 people were murdered in New Orleans More than one a day. The next year, it was even higher. 424. The single worst murder rate ever recorded in any big American city. It's well documented that the cops felt overwhelmed at that time. From early on, the detectives were interested in two suspects. One was a guy called Bird. The police had several tip-offs that it was him and when you read back through the police investigation there's evidence pointing to Bird having a strong motive. Bird's ex-girlfriend was now dating Mark Broxton. She told the cops that one day she and Mark are messing around at her house and Bird calls her house phone. He hears Mark's voice in the background. She said that Bird says on the phone that he is going to make Broxton pay. He ain't going to get away with that. Ten minutes after he was shot, she said, Bird calls to tell her. She said he knew how many times Mark had been shot and where he was hit. None of that was public knowledge. Suspect number two was Quante. According to Quante, it wasn't until the day after the shooting that he even found out who'd been killed. He knew Mark. They were childhood friends who had drifted apart. We played
4: basketball together. We played football together. You know, I moved. And they stayed in the area that we grew up in as kids. So that's when we lost contact. Me and Mark, we lost contact.
2: What was he like?
4: He was a good person, a great person. You know, we knew each other. I slept in his house, he slept in my house. Hmm. You know, I wore his clothes, he wore my clothes. He was like a close friend to me. I just figured he was going to be all right. And um, later on, they told me he died. Yeah. And then it all came out that I was supposed to be the one that did it to him. How, how,
2: how did that happen? Where did that come from?
4: Listen, I have no idea. Just, just know this. I have no idea how that happened. It was said that myself and Mark had a disagreement at a nightclub and that He drew a gun on me. That never happened. That never ever happened.
2: This rumor had been spreading around the Fisher projects, and that seemed to be the main reason detectives started looking at Quante. But the reason they ended up charging him was that there were two eyewitnesses who identified Quante. A woman called Norma Verist, but she refused to testify in court. And a man called L Price who became central to the police investigation.
4: I was in New Orleans Plaza in New Orleans East, and uh, I had my daughter on my neck. My daughter was three. And uh, my wife, Vanessa, Vanessa, uh, we were together, and uh, it was her birthday. And uh, I was buying uh, a tennis bracelet and a tennis chain then we went to Foot Lock and we bought some a tennis skirt and some, some shoes and some stuff for my daughter. And as we were walking out, a lady just popped out of nowhere with a, a police, a police lady. She drew a gun on me. And she said, sir, I need you to stop.
2: They arrest Quante and they take him downtown to the city homicide unit.
4: You know, my stomach was, was queasy. I was getting this feeling of like anxiety. Um, it was an uneasy feeling, like now nah, something going real wrong. So they asked me all kind of questions. Where were you? Uh, who can verify where you were at? And uh, we know you had an altercation with Mark, and it was just all kind of stuff. We got witnesses that said you did this shooting and people done identified you already and this and that and that. And I'm sitting there saying to myself, I'm overwhelmed with what he's saying because I'm saying to myself, nah, you just saying that because I know better than what you're saying. So uh, then they asked me a question. They said, you ever been booked before? I said, yeah, I've been through Central Lockup before. He said, I don't mean like that. He said, I mean booked. And he got a big book. And it had it folded up. And he had gray tape wrapped around it. I be mindful, I'm handcuffed. And I'm sitting there, he said, now I'ma ask you again. He said, Did you kill Mark Broxton? I said, no. He said, well, this is what I mean by getting booked. He took the book and slapped me across my head with it. And knocked me out of the chair. Now, this is a a love book about this big. It's like the size of this table. And when you stand it up, it's about two and a half to three feet high. This is what they interrogate you with. They beat you with the book. I'm a boxer. I'm trying to think of the hardest punch. It could possibly feel like a Mike Tyson punch. Because you're handcuffed and you don't know it's coming. And when they hit you with it, it's like... You're oblivious. You don't know where you're at, what's going on. And when they sit you back up, the room just spinning and spinning. And when the room stops spinning, they ask you another question. And then they hit you again. And you go through that same process over and over and over.
2: And every time they were asking you, did you kill him?
4: Yeah. And every time I told them no. And they say, well, don't worry about it. We'll get you.
2: They charge Quante with the murder of Mark Broxton and they put him in the Paris jailhouse where he waits for a whole year for his trial to begin. What's it like in the city jail?
4: It's, it's crazy. It's, it's crazy, crazy, crazy. That's the only way to describe it. Everybody got knives. Um, these young boys, including myself, that's in there fighting for every little. Inch of whatever you get, your food, uh, your shower. I'm talking about everything. It's a fight. Everything is a fight. All the stuff around me, I blocked it out. I was trying to get law books. I was trying to talk. I was writing judges and lawyers and district attorneys and people that I wasn't even supposed to be writing. I was writing. I wrote I wrote Harry Connick. I wrote Harry Connick personally in a, a multitude of letters. Mr. Connick, I didn't commit this crime. Please look into this. I'm asking you for your help. I'm talking about a multitude of times. Not one time did I get an answer. Not one time did I get an answer.
2: The name Harry Connick looms large over the criminal justice system in New Orleans. Harry Connick, district attorney.
4: He's a hard worker, very aggressive, and always on
5: the
2: ball.
6: Honesty and integrity.
2: I think he's been a good deal. He's
6: done a good job.
2: He is a real pro.
5: I think he's been fair.
2: Re-elect Harry Connick, district attorney. He was the district attorney for Orleans Parish for 30 years, from 1973 to 2003. A district attorney is one of the most, if not the most, powerful figure in criminal justice systems around the country. They're usually elected by the public and Connick won five elections, by the way. And their job is to decide who to prosecute and how to do it, whether to make plea deals or to lobby for harsher sentences or even to prosecute at all. There's a lot of discretion and therefore a huge amount of power.
1: During
5: Connick Sr.'s nearly three-decade tenure, his office handled upwards of 30,000 cases and often faced accusations of hard-line tactics.
1: Harry Connick
2: was tough on crime. And the way Harry Connick used that power is something along the lines of as much as possible. He was very aggressive and he wanted to lock them all up forever.
5: Connick's lead prosecutor was Jim Williams. Jim took great pride in his numerous death penalty convictions. He even kept a miniature electric chair on his
1: desk. Jim was regarded as one of the most aggressive prosecutors in the district attorney's office. He described sliding up behind defendants in the courtroom and buzzing in their ears to mimic the, the buzz of electricity.
6: During the Connick era, the district attorney and, and the prosecutors, their job was to win. And their job was to put people away, which is fundamentally different from an approach that says, our job is to secure justice and accountability. And that difference really
2: matters. Andrea Armstrong grew up in New Orleans and is now professor at the city's Loyola University. If you want to talk to someone about mass incarceration, there's probably no one better than Professor Armstrong. She's been studying it for decades.
6: If you are committed to putting people away, um, and and that is your motivating mantra, well, then all types of games
2: start being played. Games like withholding evidence from the defence, including evidence which could literally prove the person didn't do it. There are a lot of examples, but the most infamous is the story of John Thompson or JT. In 1984, JT, a black man, was convicted of armed robbery and then the murder of a white man. He always said he was innocent, but the state wanted to execute him. He spent 14 years on death row and narrowly escaped execution on six different occasions. Then, when all of his appeals had run out, just 30 days before his execution date, a critical piece of evidence was uncovered.
6: It really was through happenstance that investigators that were working for his defense team, literally in some warehouse, in some (laughs) back room, found this piece of blood evidence and was able to get it tested, which was able to clearly show that it wasn't JT.
2: When he was lying on his deathbed, one of Connick's prosecutors in the case admitted that he had hidden this blood evidence deliberately. When all of this came out, after a total of 18 years in prison, John Thompson was eventually exonerated. I looked around at my mom and my sons and them. The relief I felt of knowing that I'm going home.
5: This is finally behind me. This is finally
2: over with. Later on, when John Thompson sued Harry Connick... Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg issued a scathing dissent on the case. She said that this kind of thing, not disclosing favourable evidence, in the US this is called a Brady violation, seemed like it was common in Connick's office. She pointed out that prosecutors received hardly any training on Brady and described the situation as a tinderbox in which Brady violations were nigh inevitable. A later report from the Innocence Project New Orleans found that during Connick's tenure, evidence was withheld in a quarter of all death penalty convictions. Coming up, Quante's case goes to trial.
0: Wow, describe my courtroom. Uh, It it was different, (laughs) I've been told, and my courtroom was a lot different than a lot of the others that operated either at the criminal court in New Orleans, or for that matter, any other court, I guess. One Uh, of the judges
2: in Connick's era was Calvin Johnson. I started with music.
0: You started with music? I started. always started my mornings with music, with jazz. You can make people feel more at ease when they walked into a room
2: and Miles Davis was playing. Calvin was the first African-American chief judge in the city's criminal courts, and he built a reputation as a reformer. He grew up right in the thick of the civil rights movement, and he still has the scars to show it.
0: I was I was a kid, 16, and I was in den- demonstrations. I was in those marches, those kinds of demonstrations that happen that you see on TV.
4: The civil rights picture of those years was one of violence, of segregationists lashing out in resentment at the school desegregation decisions. The names in the news were names like Little Rock and Clinton, Tennessee.
0: And you Somewhere see the tear gas, the and you there. see the water holes, and you see the cattle prod, and you see the horses. I was there. So you can barely see this. You can still see the scar. You can see the scar. That that scar then is is, uh,
2: damn near 60 years old. Calvin became a judge in the middle of Harry Connick's tenure as DA, a time when courtrooms were like a conveyor belt of trials. He too recognized what Andrew Armstrong and Ruth Bader Ginsburg saw in Connick's office.
0: Seemingly, their mantra was, we are going to convict we are going to do it to the fullest extent of the law possible. We are going to go at the, the 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 most draconian sentences possible, and we are going to do it. And we are going to do it at all cost, and we are going to do it even when we know, on some form of, in some way of knowing, that this person that we are prosecuting maybe didn't even do it. And this is what I heard so many prosecutors say over the over the course of time. But we're going to operate from the view. That if he didn't do this, he did something else.
2: You heard people saying that. That was but
0: that that those kinds of, of things is not unusual to come out of those years, anyways, to come out of prosecutors' lips.
2: What was guiding that mentality?
0: I always, I always think what what guides those things is the attitude of the person at top, and that person was Harry Connick.
2: Quante's case comes to trial in the summer of 94. And actually, it's Calvin Johnson who's the judge. One of Harry Connick's assistant DAs is prosecuting. Quante lays out his defence. I wasn't there. Three alibi witnesses said, yeah, he was playing basketball when the shots rang out. The prosecutor puts on his case, which revolves around that one eyewitness, Earl Price. Price takes the stand. On the evening of the shooting... He says he's over the other side of the street, across several lanes of traffic, helping someone jumpstart a car. And he notices Mark talking on the telephone outside the store. He says he then sees Mark talking to another guy and arguing with him. The man shoots Mark four times before running around the building out of sight. At trial, crucially, both Earl Price and the lead detective testify that Price unequivocally ID'd that person as Quante Reader in a photo lineup and signed the back of his photograph three months after the shooting. I've got to say, there are parts of Price's story that are pretty strange. He says that after he's shot, Mark walks into the shop, heads right to the back, to the drinks machine, and grabs a cold drink. Remember, this is after being shot four times. Mark then walks back over to the counter to pay for his drink and only then, Price says, finally collapses. The defence calls the guy who was behind the counter that day and he says, no, it didn't happen like that. Mark didn't buy a soft drink after being shot. He comes stumbling into the shop, hardly able to walk and throws himself on the counter and says, call an ambulance. Then he collapses. It's probably more like you'd imagine somebody might behave after they've been shot four times. He also said he doesn't even remember Earl Price being inside the store when all of this happened. He remembers one of his colleagues locking the door after Mark came in. So he doesn't think anyone could have followed him inside. The pathologist who performed the autopsy gets up and agrees, no, this story doesn't sound right. Mark might not have died instantaneously, But walking all the way to the back of the store, to the drinks machine, after being shot four times, highly unlikely.
4: I'm sitting here listening to this man testify. And I'm saying, I'm looking at the jury and I'm looking like, y'all just, y'all, I know y'all don't believe what you're listening to. See, I knew the judge wanted to do something about it then. When the judge stopped him, when he said, I shot the man four times, he got up off the ground. And went
2: in the store and bought a coat. Calvin Johnson, that's the judge. Do you remember the Quante, Quante Reader case at all? Uh, not really. A lot of this just, just be, it becomes
0: a, a big glob of stuff. I did so many of these cases where you had problematic things going on with, with the, both prosecutions, both testimony, both witnesses, both so many. And to try to say I can stick some of that in my mind, some I do, most I don't. What does that say about the system? <laughs> wow. Uh, it, it, I think it says again about the kind of rush we
2: were doing in those 90s. After hearing all of the evidence, the jury goes off to make up their minds, and they aren't convinced, or at least some of them aren't. It's a hung jury, a mistrial. So Quante goes back to the parish jail. Still innocent under the law, he spends another year there, waiting. When the second trial comes around, Price tells pretty much the same story. Quante's lawyers cross-examined him even more aggressively this time, but he sticks with it, saying, I'm not going to change my testimony, Regardless of how much you roadhog me here, I'm going to be in here with the same thing I've seen, and I'm going to be saying it over and over again until I'm dead. But this time, a key difference is that the shopkeeper, the one who massively contradicted parts of Price's story, he disappears. The DA's office, it turns out, are prosecuting him too at the same time for something completely unrelated, a minor offence, and they don't think to tell Quante's lawyers this when the second trial comes around, the defence can't find the shopkeeper. And the trial happens without him. The jury goes off to deliberate. They still can't all agree. But this time, it doesn't matter. Because Louisiana, up until very recently, was one of the only places in the US where unanimous agreement isn't necessary. Ten jurors in favour, two against. That was enough. This law was unapologetically racist. After the Civil War, the US Supreme Court ruled that states could not exclude black people from juries. So in 1898, Louisiana held a constitutional convention. The idea was, and I quote, to establish the supremacy of the white race in this state to the extent to which it could be legally and constitutionally done. One thing that came out of that were these Jim Crow juries which aimed to silence the voice of the black people on majority white jury panels. The result is that black defendants have been disproportionately convicted by non-unanimous decisions ever since. And that's what happened to Quante. Guilty by non-unanimous decision.
4: I got to talk to my daughter. And, uh, she came and gave me a hug and she kissed me because I couldn't hug her because I was handcuffed. And, uh, she just told him, she said, Dad, I love you. I said, I love you too, baby. I kissed, and she walked off. And then the anger set in, and all of the hurt. I started feeling it because I had done shielded it off, believing in my mind and my heart that I was going to be released or be free of the charge. And because that didn't happen, It overwhelmed me. It all came down on me at one time. And uh, I went in a dark place in my heart and in my
0: mind.
2: After the trial, Quante went back to jail for a few more months. And then the bus arrived to take him to the Louisiana State Penitentiary. Angola, one of America's most brutal prisons.
4: That's like the worst ride you ever going to take that's for sure. You're shackled on your feet and your hands, and just knowing where you're going, mentally, it'll destroy you. Knowing you're going to one of the bloodiest prisons in America, which it was the bloodiest prison in America for a long time. So then you hear all these bad things about Angola. So you know you're going there, and the thought process is how you going to deal with it? How you going to survive?
2: Tomorrow, life in Angola and will a change in New Orleans give Quante new hope? We made contact with the alternate suspect in the case, Bird, who has never been charged in relation to the crime. I presented him with the allegations made against him during the police investigation and later sworn to in court. He said he had, quote, no involvement whatsoever in the killing and that mark was a friend of his.
1: This series is presented by Oliver Lachland. The series producer is Josh Kelly. Original music and sound design by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producer is Nicole Jackson. Additional development production by Katie Fenelius and Pete Sale. The Division New Orleans will be running across the weekend, so we'll be back tomorrow, Saturday, for the next episode.